0: Women Who Write Take Flight. As women who write, we recognize the importance of supporting one another because together we are stronger. Our goal is to provide this support through discussions about developing character, setting, plot, and dialogue. We will include interviews, panel discussions, and informal chats. Our team of Wild Women includes Gabby Anderson, author of South of Happily, a novel that started as a love letter to a lost parent, and turned into a story about staying sane when life tries to shove us to the business end of a meat grinder. She is currently writing the second book in this series, North of Happily. Kim Conry, author of the sci-fi romance Stealing Aries and the memoir, You're Not a Murderer, You Just Have OCD. She also writes a blog to bring awareness to OCD at harmocdkimconry.com. April Dilbeck, author of A Sacred Thing, a detective story about the theft of an African shaman's mask that leads the readers from the Congo to the elite world of New York art dealers and collectors. Elizabeth Jones, author of Literary Fiction and our resident MFA in creative writing. And Kathy Nichols, author of The Sometime Sister, a psychological thriller that explores the bonds of sisterhood and life after loss. Our flight is organic, and our journey is ongoing. We invite you to join us along the way. Welcome to Wild Women Who Write Take Flight. Tonight we have a special guest, Jennifer Jenkins, and we also have an honorary Wild Women Who Write member, Kat Feeler. We have never gotten a chance to actually meet her in person, but we all feel like we know her very personally. So she is also the one responsible for helping us to make all these wonderful connections with talented people like Jennifer. And we're very excited to have Jennifer here tonight because her topic is so interesting, but her background is just as interesting. So I'm going to ask you, as I said earlier, I'm afraid to introduce you because you have (laughs) so many things going on. So I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself and then we can ask you some questions about how you got from point A to point B to all the other points. Okay, well, thank you very
1: much. It's really lovely to be here, and it's very exciting for me to be talking about bourbon because who doesn't love bourbon? I have, I do have a very background, and it is kind of interesting to see how you travel from point A to point B. I did start out in theater since I was a little kid. I think the first play that I wrote was sort of a take off on Charlie Brown I wrote it I directed it I paid the other kids in the neighborhood a dollar to be in it and then I charged twice as much to the parents so hey, hey win-win I was eight so I, yeah, I think I'm allowed And that really became my focus in life to be on stage to um, I worked as an actor for many years in New York. I was always writing as well. So that's what I think was the most fun for me was to write the plays that I could then put myself in as well. And I did this for many years. I also went to write some screenplays for some films that were optioned. I worked in television with great performances, which is a wonderful series that I, I miss dearly. Then I moved up to a very small town in the country after my daughter was born. I love New York, but I wanted her to have that sort of upbringing where there was family around and she could go outside and she wouldn't have to wait in line to get on the swing. Unfortunately, there just wasn't a lot of theater there. I did some things with school kids, which I think was still one of the crowning achievements to be able to introduce very rural kids to theater. And my father was the one who had said to me, you know, if you wanted to go back to school to look into this further, I, I think you should pursue that. So I went to graduate school. And I fully intended on going in for playwriting because that's what I did. And I got there and I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to really push myself. I'm going to really challenge myself. So after a couple of days, I said, I think I want to change from playwriting to fiction. And the director of the program did not beat me about the head, although she, she looked as if she might want to, but she went with it and I had some wonderful instructors there that helped me to make the transition between writing for stage and writing for the page, which doesn't sound like it should be that much different, but it really is, because we would do these exercises in class, and they would say, okay, your dialogue is great, but what do these people think? I said, oh, what do they think? Well, that's up to the director. We put it on stage. That's where we go with it. Well, no, we want to know what their thoughts and feelings are. And I said, well, I don't know. Ah, oh, okay, so now you're writing fiction. So that's how all of that came about from writing plays into writing fiction, and it was tough. It was really a challenge, but again, I had some great instructors that really helped me get through this to where I am today with the first book published, so I'm very happy about that.
0: And your first book is American Bourbon, and it's set—you're living in Tennessee— No, I'm actually living in Philadelphia now. Oh, okay. So you've been all over the place. The setting of the book is a fairly rural South. And it was very interesting to me because when I was growing up, there was a family that lived down the street. I don't remember much about them because the children were much younger than I was. And I found out that he had been sent to prison because he was a bootlegger. I didn't have a clue what a bootlegger was. And your parents give you vague and unsatisfactory answers on this, that, that I had this lifelong curiosity about it. And it seems that it has gotten the reputation, the moonshine making and the bootlegging part of the Southern culture. So I was very interested and surprised to find out that Of course, it originated with the Irish and Scottish settlers that came over and ended up in Pennsylvania, where it was George Washington who actually put the tax on the alcohol, and it just made everybody so angry. And there was the Whiskey Rebellion, and eventually they got rid of the tax. And then after the Civil War, I think it was only about 50 or 60 years till Prohibition hit. So the South was already extremely annoyed about losing. Some people have still say we didn't, but we did and they decided that It was just total infringement on freedom to to make that moonshine. So it became this sort of rebellious, kind of romanticized culture, which we know it's romanticized, but for a long time, American audiences, American readers didn't really know that. I think as soon as your book opens and we meet Caleb, we know that this is not going to be romanticized. We're going to get heavy dose of reality. I thought it was a very bold move for you to start with Caleb as your main character. Give us a little overview. I don't like to give overviews. My daughter always says I give away too much. So I want you to tell enough that people want to read it. Don't let me be the spoiler. But tell us a little bit about your process in starting with Caleb.
1: Well, Caleb is the one everyone loves to hate. He's a very interesting and very complex character. You can look at him on a plot line and say okay he's the alcoholic father but there's so much more to him than that and I've had a lot of feedback from different people about the way that they feel about Caleb especially from people that have parents that have substance abuse problems as well it's easy to stand outside of it and say how can you have anything to do with a father like that until you're in it and then it's a completely different field you can love someone and hate them at the same time and that's what all of his children are dealing with when we start when he says he doesn't know who's going to take over because none of his children speak to him any longer But they're still there, and they still have the stock in the company. So there's a lot of little wheels that are going at the same time. I wanted to open the book with Kaylee because I wanted to start right from the beginning to say, this is what this book is about. This book is about moonshine. This book is about people who cook it, people who appreciate it, people who have this in their blood, essentially. And initially, we think, well... Caleb's not that bad, he's got this company, it's all legal, he's bought the licenses, and so forth. But the farther in we go, we realized, oh wait, there's something else going on here. There's this whole separate still he's got, hidden far into the mountains, and what about that? And how is that going to come into play as well? But I wanted to start out with Moonshine, I
0: wanted people to see that initially this is where we're going, and this is the focus of the book. And I think it's very helpful that you present in the background eventually that Caleb himself came from an abusive situation that a lot of the things he did, he didn't really know any better. And what you said about the parent, especially, can love him and hate him at the same time, answering the question, why would you have anything to do with someone like that? Well, these kids only have him. The Bridget, the youngest child and the daughter, doesn't remember her mother at all. The other two remember her one has terrible guilt issues about her. And the other one is a very interesting character too. He's the one who, he's not an active alcoholic. I think he too had an addictive personality but the other two are products of an alcoholic background and they didn't obviously choose to continue the tradition but somehow it just sort of happened for them and that to me is especially tragic but also very realistic. Bridget is an interesting character. I like that she's not Mary Sunshine and I like that she's also got this manipulative streak going. Would you say all of the kids, all of the people in the Book are manipulative? Well, if we look at the general population, I would say
1: everybody's got a little bit of that in them. It depends on what matters to you most. And Bridget, being the youngest, she was just two when their mother died. So she and her father, it completely went off the deep end at that point. So has really been on her own. Yes, her brothers did help to raise her, but her determination is she's going to take over this company and she's going to make it into something great. And she really believes this. And you have to respect the optimism of the young because it's going to happen no matter what. And so when her brother Matt comes in and he's older to say, well, I don't know if this is going to work the way you think it's going to work. Yes, it is. Absolutely is. I'm going to do it. And that's that and you're going to help me. And so I love that about her um, to be so forthright in what it is exactly that she wants to do. She's too young to see that there are all kinds of obstacles going in her way. And sometimes maybe that's what we need is to say, I'm going to put these blinders on and I'm not going to think about what's in my way. I'm just going to go forward and I'm going to do it. Because if we do that, then you can be a playwright that writes fiction and everything works out fine because you you don't spend the time saying, oh, no." I can't do that because I don't know how because you don't know until you
0: try so that to me is the beauty really of Bridget and there's a heavy realistic bent to that too with all of the flavored alcohols and the the emphasis on the breweries and the whiskey tastings and and things like that she's really on top of the market well she's on top of the idea Uh, Lonnie is one of my favorite characters He breaks my heart every time I think about him. What was it that caused you to create the relationship between Ronnie and Caleb that was so different from the one he had with his children? The relationship started
1: even before Caleb had met Maeve, his wife. So he was completely on his own at that point. And he had, of course, seen Lonnie come and go in the barn, even though Lonnie thought he was so well hidden. He was just seven, so he didn't know. And... Caleb realized when he sees him eating out of the dog dish that this kid is alone, he's abandoned, that nobody cares. And living out in the Blue Ridge Mountains the way that he does, this isn't something that is unusual, which is what is really sad. And Caleb decides that not only does Lonnie need him, but maybe he needs Lonnie as well. He needs someone to take care of. He needs to be needed, essentially. And so that's what makes him take Lonnie in. And he does, in fact treat Lonnie better than his own children because Lonnie comes from nothing. He he never finds his parents again or his brothers and sisters. He is completely loyal to Caleb to a point. So we also see him back and forth not knowing how far should he go, how How close is he to Caleb, and if there's a decision that needs to be made between Caleb and the kids, that's where Lonnie really rides the line there. And he's also one of my favorite characters because he's just so, he he comes from nothing, and he carves out a good life for himself, and I love that about him.
0: I think part of his appeal to Caleb is Lonnie has no expectations of Caleb, no expectations from life. And I feel like Caleb has this idea that his children have these certain expectations that possibly because he feels guilty about being such a terrible dad, which is interesting because we don't get much of a second look at Caleb until, I'd say, three-fourths of the way into the book, maybe a little further. And that was interesting, too. I also loved that you dropped in a little bit of background on Maeve because uh, her Irish heritage was not exactly what I had pictured when Caleb remembers how they met. And it was both saucy and, I would, like I said, a little surprising. And I like that you don't have this one-dimensional ghost mother you know, mm-hmm. in, in the background like that. So it it was, yeah, I really, really enjoyed the book. And not just because I had that sort of strange fixation on moonshine and bootleggers. I know that Lisbeth had a few things she might want. Did you have some things you wanted to ask Lisbeth? I was thinking that this book
2: is, you know, after I finished it, I saw the Amazon said, do you want to read more Appalachian noir and I thought, you know, I mean, I guess you could categorize it as that. But for me, this book was about so much more than that. It was, you know, it's a little less Ozark, a little more Winter's Bone, you know. And to me, you know, it's not just kind of a tale of the Hatfields and McCoys. It's, I mean, one of the strongest elements in the book to me is the portrayal of generational patterns of abuse. And, you know, one thing will happen to a character And an almost identical thing will happen to their offspring, even if it's unplanned. Like, say, for example, I'm thinking of when Caleb as a boy is pushed into the steps of the porch, landing on his face and getting his nose bloodied, and then Bridget falls into the bar and breaks her nose at her high school graduation party. It's almost like you inherit the pain from the next generation. Or, you know, certain instances of of vulnerability that keep coming back, like with Mac, he's applying for a loan in the bank, trying to get away from his family. And he's got this ink stain on his pants. And then, you know, we find out later that as a child, he, you know, had wet himself. And then later in New York City, he's got Asian food slopped on his jeans. It's like the poor guy just cannot escape the shamefulness of trying to be a man in this family and to try to lead it. And, the, and these patterns also show up in the DNA as you know, bodily diseases such as cancer. And so I feel like there's just so much more going on. There's so many more undercurrents than simply the, the crime um, intrigue aspect of it. And it was really enjoyable
1: you. And I'm really glad that you brought up the connection sort of to Ozark because uh, one of my editors said to me, oh, I, I see this like Ozark. And I had watched some episodes and I thought, no, this is a lot different to me. It's a lot more about family, really, than what is happening. It's more centered on that. And so someone said, well, if you had to say what is your book like, I said honestly, my book is more like Succession if you've seen the HBO show, because there's this great plot line about we have this company and who's going to take it over and they're all in the family together and they all love each other and they all hate each other and they all want to kill each other, but they still love each other and then there's always, well, I'm, I'm going to be loyal to you until I'm gonna, now I'm going to be loyal to this one. And they're all interconnected and changed and they can't seem to break apart at all. And it's that family relationship, I think, that is really more important than anything else in the book. There is action, but it's really about this entire family and where it is that they want to go with this. That's the most important. I've had People, uh, readers, come up to me and say that the things they could really relate to were having an older brother that treated them this way um, or assist people talk to me about Caleb and how they thought other people don't understand how I could still care for my father or my mother even though she had been this way. And so that to me was what made it worthwhile when people would say, thank you for being able to show this to people the way that it really happens. And I said, well, thank you for reading it.
2: Yeah. And I think another thing that you brought out about generational abuse is there are layers and distinctions and that kind of got me thinking about judging too harshly people who come from this kind of background and then start doing it themselves. And to me, the distinction is that it seems like Caleb's father was treating his sons this way out of fear and frustration because he's trying to prepare them for this very tough world. And so being a loving father is toughening them up. Whereas then when he's gone, Caleb's brothers are just outright mean bullies that just delight in tormenting him. So I thought that was a really interesting distinction between um, the motives for some of this.
1: I did an immense amount of research into moonshine because I thought if I'm going to write about something, I really want to know what it is that I'm going to. And so I had a friend who lived in Virginia out in a very rural area that said, come down here. I can introduce you to some people who may or may not give you their real name. I said, okay, this sounds like And so we went out on a tour and we we drove up into the mountains and we got out, we walked around and he said, you know, these are the things that you really need to have when you're going to make moonshine, you need to have the water source, you need to have the tree cover. you need to make sure that you're close enough to the road, but not too close. And then we were walking by this stream and he said, okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to turn around very slowly and we're going to walk back to the truck because I See that there is a still there, and I think it's an old one, but it might not be. So before we get shot, let's just go back. And so it even goes on still today, and I actually do know some people in Pennsylvania who do make moonshine. The laws vary from state to state. For instance, in Pennsylvania, you can make moonshine but you can't sell it. So you can give it away as a gift if you want to, but that's as far as you can go. And there are differences on percentages and what you are able to call it as well. But let me tell you something. The first time that I had, and he was at a friend's barbecue, and he said, I want you to try my wine. He called it my wine. So he gave me this little tiny Dixie cup, and I said, I can do better than that. He said, well, just have a sip and let me know what you think. So I threw that one back, and he said, do you want another? I said, of course I want another. So I had a couple more of those, and then I stood up, and then I fell down, because that stuff is strong, and you don't realize how strong it is until, again, you try to stand up. So he had his fun with that, and then He started to explain to me all the ways that moonshine is made. He talked to me about the dirt and what he grew, the things that he put into his moonshine. He was very into elderberries, and so that was something that he grew a lot of so that he could make his wine, as he called it. And there's so much pride that I I can't stress that enough, and I hope that I Mm -hmm. enough on that in the book. Um, And the reason that I really went with bourbon is because Bourbon is the one American alcohol, and that is the designation that actually makes it bourbon. It has to be at least 51% corn. It has to be in aged oak barrels, and it has to be made in America. So with our country really being relatively new, there's not a lot we could say, but we could say that bourbon belongs to us. So while other people, I know in Poland, it's very big, especially with imports, which you can't call it bourbon unless it's made in America. So that's something that I thought we need to appreciate also.
0: You mentioned the elderberries, uh, and I thought of cough syrup, and when, when I was a child, I had asthmatic bronchitis. And my mother was a nurse and she would bring all these remedies and shots and stuff. But when it got too bad, she would go to her friend and get just a relatively small portion of Moonshine and use it with VIX vapor rub on my chest. I did not drink it, but I felt it. And I remember thinking, what in the world is that? And then Occasionally, she did a hot toddy, but I'm pretty sure that was actually with bourbon, not with the moonshine, <laughs> or I might have had some mental disorders. <laughs> but it is interesting how it does play into the lives of people who've been around it. You know, it doesn't have to be the South. Obviously, Pennsylvania has a long tradition and of pride with it. We just think about the Blue Ridge Mountains and Rocky Top, Tennessee, and all of these places where... You better not be walking too far into the woods and come across somebody still because that's important to them. So it it touches to me on a lot of things that are both Southern and universal. And the ideas that the Irish and the Scots brought when they came over, and many of them settled in the mountain areas, and so we have this sense of fierce independence and all of these qualities that are both positive and negative, the same way the Moonshine has positive and negative connotations. I think that there's just, like Liz was saying, there's so much in the book. Kat, you introduced us to this lovely author. Do you have anything you'd like to add?
2: No, but I really had fun reading the book. I spent some time in Tennessee, and I had a friend, a native of the town. It was uh, the University of the South, so Sewanee, Tennessee, in case anybody's heard of it. It's very, very small, and it's mostly a university, but the local people are very, very interesting. And he took me hiking one day, and we were walking, and I had exactly that experience. He said, stop, stop just stop. And I'm like, why? I thought, Ooh, I'm going to see a deer or something. You know, <laughs> so I was a city girl. I came from Miami and, uh, I was so excited. And then he's like, no, oh, no, I gotta go. Shh. <laughs> he wouldn't tell me why until we were out on the road. <laughs> and he told me why. And I, I found your book really interesting, but I also love the layers. I love the
0: generational, like everything, you know, that Elizabeth was saying, I thought that it was really well put together. I grew up in Chattanooga, so I definitely know the University of Swanee. Uh, it was a huge party school. And now I'm putting all this together as to the people there would know how to party because they knew how to get party materials. And it's just, it's very interesting to weave that into our backgrounds and how that affects how you grow up. Because I would imagine there would be people who would be calling uh, family services if they knew that my mother had been rubbing alcohol on my chest, but it helped, you know, and she, like I said, she was a nurse. So it just does tell us more about our than I think we sometimes realize. Now, it was not part of your growing up background, though, Jennifer. No, not
1: at all. My father, who I, I always have to say, was nothing like Caleb. He was wonderful. He encouraged me all the way with my writing, and he actually grew up a farmer, so it could not have been farther from what he grew up to see me going off to college and saying, yeah, but I'm going to major in theater. He's like, well, okay, if that's what you want to do, that's what you should do. I did see him with a jug of moonshine once, and I'm going to say I think I was a freshman in college, and it was one of those big jugs, and you rested on your shoulder, and, you, and I was just like, wow, that's amazing. And he said, no, this is not for you at all. But the the generations, you know, going into this was really actually fun the more research that I did because when you look at these mash bills, which is what they call the recipes that they have for the moonshine that they distill, they go back all the way, as you said, to Ireland and Scotland where it wasn't a terribly illegal thing to make alcohol at all. And in fact, as you said earlier, Even in this country, it wasn't bad. In fact, I found some research where George Washington himself had actually distilled. It was more rye than bourbon, but I think we can forgive him for that. And again, the Whiskey Rebellion was what came up because they needed to finance the revolution. And so then he taxed the alcohol. But talking to people who, again, would not give their names, but were happy to talk about their family heritage and what they went back to would say, you know, this is how my granddaddy did it. And this is what we put in our bourbon. And so I tried to put that into the book as well. The reason that it's called bourbon sweet tea is because on their land, they had a lot of fruit trees, and they had a lot of peaches, and you use what you have, so they took those peaches and put them into the bourbon, and that's what made them stand out. That's what made their product special. People still do that to this day, and I don't see, especially when you think about these people were making their moonshine and everything was fine pretty much through up until the Depression, and there was nothing, and they had no jobs, they had no food. This was all they had, and this is a lot of where Caleb's background comes in with his older brothers. All they had was moonshine, so they really needed to protect that, and this is also a historical fact for a lot of people, that all they knew how to do was make alcohol, and also the fact that people would give up a lot, to have alcohol instead of even having a new coat. So you can judge that harshly maybe today, but at the time, we don't know what it's like to live in those times. So we have to step back and say people did what they needed to do to survive. And that also goes along with the generational things of why does no one ever call Child Services on Caleb and say, your daughter, I mean, she's she's out of control because Caleb has all the money. He's built that town. He put in the fire department. He built the library, and everyone's just a little bit afraid of Caleb. So they do what they can do, but then we get to the fact where Bridget is involved with the library and the library who thinks this is just a terrible thing and she's going to take care of this girl. And then all of a sudden, she's just gone. She's gone. She's not in the library. She's not in the town. She's not in the state. No one knows what happened to her. We can leave that up to imagination, maybe. But that's how far it goes with the generations and the abuse, again, that gets handed down over and over and over again.
0: So we can always go back and we can we can love alcohol and we can curse alcohol at the same time. I thought that was especially interesting when Caleb did sort of disappear the librarian because it was his way of showing his love for his daughter without real, I mean, he just was furious that this woman had somehow hurt his little girl and yet she had no idea of the depth of his emotion and he got angry with her because she wasn't appreciative. I mean it was like it's like this communication thing too and how hard it is for people to communicate. And we could also get into a comparison with moonshine and marijuana, which I think is fascinating and the whole different types of I forgot what you call it, but the the variations of pot that people are very proud that theirs has this and theirs has that. It's getting very complicated. But it it's interesting that people do take pride and these things that we could judge them, but we, we like the products, you know, we could, we'd have to judge ourselves too. Gabby, did you want to ask anything? Anybody want to ask anything, um, anything we didn't ask?
2: No, I was, I was going to say when you were talking about people making moonshine or something in Poland, I remember my mother saying when she was probably about 21 and 22 before the Hungarian revolution, she was a pharmacist and they made moonshine. While well, they made vodka, they distilled vodka in the pharmacy because you couldn't get it anywhere. And so they made it too. It's probably every country, anytime you know, there's a scarce resource, people find how to make it. And there's always stories around that.
1: They did that here too, during prohibition. Um, pharmacists could still make alcohol. But you needed a prescription to get it. So, of course, who who owns that? Well, all the rich people went got their prescriptions because I have a, ne- a nervous problem. Yeah, that's a nervous problem. So they could go to the pharmacy and they could get their a medicine and that would make them feel better. So it's
0: always going to be there. Right.
2: I have to ask her about that. I have to ask her if she needed a prescription or who, who taught her how to make it.
0: Yeah, is this, I think the, this book did generate a lot of questions, a lot of introspection. And even though it was very tragic in a lot of ways, there were redeeming things in the way the family worked it out. I mean, they, they and Bridget, I think, was the, the linchpin in that. She made sure she was, like you said, she was the youth who's saying, no, we're going to do this. And it wasn't just, we're going to keep the company. We're going to make a go of it. It was, we're going to be a family, whether you like it or not. And that was very heartening. Speaking of Bridget and the family, what's next in your plans? Do you Would you ever write revisit your characters? Not necessarily a sequel, but uh, a revisitation? Or what are you planning next?
1: I've had several people come up to me and say, I love the backgrounds with Caleb and his brothers. Can you take us back there? And I said, wouldn't you rather I just hit you right now? Um, but that was really fun to work on, and a lot of that was really based on historical research at the time. So that's something that I'm sort of keeping on the back burner. I have started a new book. It has nothing to do with Moonshine. It's about a lovely little group of Manhattan moms who are desperate, to get their kids into the right school, but they don't all live in the right district. And so one of the mothers comes up with this great idea, but she has to sort of fudge the facts a little bit, and then the lies start to grow one on top of another until it actually turns into murder. And it's a
0: question of how far would you go for your children? Which actually is kind of what was going on in... American Bourbon as well. Do you, have a, do you have a working title for the book? I, I can't release it yet. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, we will be very excited to see how that goes. We have been thrilled to talk to you. I can't wait to see what your next project is, or if, if you're going to get a chance to write the TV show, or I always say TV shows because with a book like this, I think a movie, you need a serial. You need time to develop the characters. You can't just slam them on there. And people will ask, you know, who do you see playing the characters? I can always think of older actors, but for the young characters, I'm just, well, maybe the one I'm so-and-so, but I don't know the names like I should. That would be a happy problem to have, however, for you and for any of us. So it's just been so much fun to talk to you. And I hope that you'll keep us updated on when book, the book then your next book comes out and for our listeners if you haven't read American Bourbon I think you should belly up to the bar and give it a shot oh that was terrible but thank you again jennifer for being with us
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's really great for me to actually talk to women about the book and about all the different aspects. And not only that, but talk to other women writers. Um, that's kind of a thrill for me. So I'm really appreciative,
0: and thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us tonight. We welcome your comments and invite you to check out our Wild Women Who Write website. Until next time, keep writing and stay wild.